Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1. Today we're going to suspend the proverb of the day to next Sunday because there's, a, there's some stuff that we have to cover about the book before we actually get into the book. So I want to, for time constraints, we'll continue Proverbs next Sunday. Um, the last time we finished Colossians with the focus really on being Christ-centered. And today we start the first chapter of Revelation. Now, if you're not real familiar with Revelation, maybe you've read some of it or heard about it or maybe seen a clip on the Discovery Channel and you, you, you just have these images of these wild beasts and, and um, all kinds of cataclysmic events. But understand that as we go through Revelation, what you're going to see is there is wild imagery, but really the focus is on Jesus Christ. So hopefully you gain a new understanding by the time we're done with the book of Jesus Christ. A little bit of the background. In the Greek, the word is apokalupsis Iesu Christu which means the unveiling or the revelation or the disclosure of Jesus Christ. We get the word apocalypse from that Greek word, and it's, in the English it's taken on a, a broader meaning, uh, more of the end of the world cataclysm. But understand, apocalypsis just means the unveiling or revealing. Okay? Revelation covers a few things, the sovereignty of God, the final judgment of evil, the final perfecting of believers the greatest understanding of Jesus Christ on this side of eternity, and hope we're going to see, something that Obama and McCain combined couldn't provide us with. For, um, the second point is the author. The author is the disciple John while exiled on the island of Patmos, which was a penal colony under the Domitian uh, Empire. Understand that the emperor was Titus Flavius Domitian from A.D. 81 through 96, and what's unique about him was he demanded worship as a god while he was alive. Uh, there was an emperor worship cult that went on. Uh, after they were dead, they would be revered. But this guy wanted worship while he was alive. Of course, that was a problem with Christians who had seen the risen Christ. And, of course, they were persecuted for that. The time is A.D. 95, A.D. 96. And the audience, microcosmically or myopically, right, uh, was the seven Western Asian churches. That was the audience. However, panoramically or macrocosmically, it's even to us believers today. And why did he write it? Well, God wanted him to write it. That's always the best reason. And Christian persecution was ramped up, so God wanted to give his people hope. You see, if we look at the sovereignty of God and see how great God is and the vastness of him and how he has control over human events, over the the creation as a whole, as we start to see how big God is, our problems become small when we realize that God has it all under control. And that's something that we have to meditate on. Even if there's an issue with our life or death situation, the bigger we realize who our God is, our problems actually start to shrink. It's an inverse relationship. This was the last book chronologically of the Bible, and it really marked the end of the apostolic age. By this time in history, all the disciples, all the apostles, excuse me, are dead except John. And John's an old man, so his life is, is going to be gone shortly. So at the end of the apostolic age, God wanted to leave his people hope. Quickly, some, some views on interpret, interpreting the book of Revelation. If you've gone to some type of schooling or seminary, uh, there's, there's the futuristic view. 
All events in Revelation occur at the end of human history and surround the immediate return of Jesus Christ. That's the futuristic view. The historical view is that all events are interpreted in light of church history up to the Reformation. The Protestant reformers held that view. The preterist view. All events were interpreted in light of current history to the Apostle John or contemporary to the Apostle John and in light of the Roman Empire. And symbolic view. All events in the book are symbolic. Now, symbols are interesting because symbols are a visual representation of a spiritual truth and revelation as the parables in the Gospels were an audible representation of spiritual truth. Remember, Jesus would tell stories to his disciples. You know, whatever, there's two people grinding at the mill and this will happen, and in their mind they would get a picture. But these audible stories would convey a spiritual truth. Here in, the, in Revelation, a lot of the symbols now, visual, are starting to uh, convey a spiritual truth. Our view, the way we're going to look at Revelation, I hate to bring you back to high school mathematics, but do you remember Venn diagrams? Venn diagrams, the, the circle with the set, another circle with a set, and where they, inter, you know, where they intersected or overlapped, there would be another set. So what we're going to do is we're going to see that a lot of these views have good merit. But the disciple John himself is going to give us clues to how we're to interpret the book, or, or just outright stating it. In other words, he'll say, then, after, indicating chronology. After these things I saw. So, you know, this, this event is after that event. Or he'll say, I, I saw an actual object versus I saw something like. He's not really sure what he's seeing, and he's doing his best to describe it. So, John's uh, senses were pretty much were assaulted by scintillating pictures. Uh, m- m- sure, certainly better than DreamWorks or Pixar. And we're going to see that in this book. Verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signify it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Now, I'm going to break this up into five sections. The first section is the message is given. We see the giving of the revelation originating from God the Father, eventually to John the disciple, and then eventually to all believers. Verse 1, these things must shortly take place. The Greek word for shortly is tache which the English, we get in the English prefix, especially in medical terms, tachy, tachycardia means rapid heart, heart rate. So the, the word indicates a rapidness, a rapidity. So Revelation will unfold rapidly. And in verse 3, he says, for the time is near. Well, we look at that and say, but 2,000 years have passed. How, how do I rectify that? Remember, if you look at the chapter of Second Peter, um, the book of Second Peter, chapter 3, he kind of explains that, and you can read that on your own and meditate over it, but God's timing is not our timing. And even Peter said in his day that there were scoffers that would say, oh, yeah, the Lord's going to come back. Everything's kind of going on like it did from the beginning. Where is, where is he interrupting human history? So even in, in, in Peter's day, there was, there was uh, scoffers. But we also know that there's a scripture, uh, a portion where Peter says that to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as of a day. Remember, God is outside of eternity. For us, a thousand years is a long time. But for God, it's just like it happened yesterday. So if you put this in perspective, from the time that Jesus was ascended, he's been gone for two days. 
And we know on the third day he rose again, right? He appeared to his believers. So, listen, I'm not setting dates. I think that's, it's definitely unscriptural. However, we are close. I believe we are. Another way you can look at it is he's saying the time is near. These things must shortly take place from the time that was spoken to him to the time he got the revelation uh, in chapter 2 of the churches happened rather quickly. And we'll see that next Sunday. So the question is, what should our lives look like knowing or based on we're in the middle of this? As we, as we go through these books, we're going to see that uh, contemporary events really are starting to line up with the book of Revelation. Well, Matthew 24, uh, 51, Jesus talks about a parable of the two servants. And he says, who is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Surely I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if the evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him at an hour when he is not aware of, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, is Jesus our Lord? Is he our master? Are we the faithful and wise servants? Because there's two roads that we can take. We could either be watchful and we could be behaving ourselves and doing what we're supposed to do, or we could be getting drunk and beating our fellow servants. And what will happen when the Lord comes back? He's going to cut them in two and appoint them with the hypocrites. There's a saying that there's three types of people in the world, believers, unbelievers, and make-believers. And when the Lord comes back, he's going to make that that dichotomy. He's going to make that split uh, obvious. So what should we be doing knowing that the Lord's uh, return is imminent and it's going to come back rapidly? It's just a question that we can all ask ourselves and look at our own lives and make that uh, introspective look. And verse 3, he said, blessed is he. So blessed. There's, this is the first out of seven blessings that are given in this book. And he tells you who is blessed. Well, those who read this prophecy... Okay, we're reading the prophecy. Those who hear the prophecy. Now, Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That meant that many people, because we don't have flaps on our ears, right? We hear a lot of information come into our ears. But we can hear it, but not take it into heart. So he who has an ear, let him hear. Are we ready to receive what God has for us this morning? And number three, those who keep it. In other words, those who hide it, in their hearts and meditate on it. It's a practice. It's meditation. And there's a blessing for those. So I'm excited to see what the rest of my day looks like after uh, reading this. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Second point, the message is delivered. John is diligent to pass the message to a group of churches, later clarified in verse 11 that we're going to read. So John says, grace to you from him who is, that's the present, is, who, who was, that's the past, and who is to come, which is the future. 
This speaks to the eternal nature of the Father. Malachi 3.6 and Psalm 92 also speak to that eternal nature. So from the Father and from the seven spirits, or in other translations, from the, seven, the sevenfold spirit. This is a completion or a picture of the completion of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11.2 speaks about that sevenfold office. And from Jesus Christ. Well, this is amazing because most of the letters we read in the Bible are from the Apostle Paul, from the Apostle Peter. Well, we're reading a letter today that's from God himself, from the Father, from the Son, and from the Holy Spirit. How does that make you feel this morning? Think about what type of emotional baggage you might have carried into this church that only you know about. Financial issue, issue with your kids, issue with your spouse, you know, just issue of feeling like you're backsliding. Whatever the issue is that you came into this church this morning, God has a personal message from you. And we really need to meditate on that. He has a blessing for you. He has a message for you. I believe he has healing for you, for all of us, through this book. And in verse 5, from Jesus. Now, Jesus is explained a little bit more in detail. Who is Jesus? Well, there's a few descriptors of who Jesus is. The first one is the faithful witness. In the Greek, the word is martus, where we get the word martyr from. Jesus was the ultimate witness of the Father's message and of an exemplified life in word and deed. Jesus was all of it. He's a great example for us. And he was the firstborn from the dead. Now... Some who don't believe in the deity of Christ will say, gotcha, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He was a created being. And if you've ever had somebody knocking on your door, claiming to be a Christian group, saying, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, let's take this apart. The firstborn from the dead. You can't take that word firstborn and parse it or break it up into its component parts in the English because not every English word you can do that with. In other words, the word butterfly can we take butterfly apart and say they're a bunch of flies made of butter, you know, whizzing around? No, that's ridiculous. It's a butterfly. The word firstborn means preeminent. Now, the word is used in Psalm 89:27 about David. David is spoken of as the firstborn. Well, that doesn't make sense because he was the runt of the litter. He was the lastborn, right? So firstborn just means preeminent. We see this in Romans 8:29 and Colossians 1:15 and 1:18, which we covered in the book of Colossians. So he's preeminent. He is the firstborn. He is the prototype. He is the example. And because of him, because of his resurrection, we can all be resurrected. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Third descriptor. Now, neither we nor the Jews have seen this fulfillment. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Let me give you an example. In those days, um, in Bible times, you, there was a lot of monarchies. You might have an eight-year-old kid who was ready to ascend to the throne when his father died. And he, for all intents and purposes, father dies, he's the king. People would look at him and go, no, no fear, no real reverence for him, until it's his time and he ascends onto the throne and now he's the king. He has the power of the armies and the navies and the power over life and death of the individual citizens. Jesus is the king. Jesus has always been the king, except it hasn't been his time yet to reveal himself as the king, but he will. And that's that whole thing with the lion and the lamb. The Old Testament rabbis would read it and say, this is messianic. Well, the part about the lamb and the suffering service, but this is messianic, the, the part about the lion and the great ruler and the conqueror. And they would scratch their heads and they couldn't rectify it. But Jesus came first as the lamb, and then when he comes again, he will come as the lion. So he is the king. 
and the one who loved us and washed us in his blood. Wow, that's pretty heavy stuff. He washed us in his blood. I've been to a lot of crime scenes uh, in 18 years as a law enforcement official, and blood is messy, it stains, and you want to get it off of you as quick as possible. But this is different. He washed us in his blood. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 17.11, it says, For the life of the flesh, God says this to his people, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your, for your souls. Okay? Hebrews 9 tells us, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So Jesus washed us in his blood. Because Jesus shed his blood on the cross, we can have eternal life if we believe in the sacrifice he made. Starting all the way back from the Old Testament through to the, the lambs that were sacrificed, through to the Passover, all the way to Jesus Christ, shedding of blood. So Jesus washed us in his blood, and because of that, because of his voluntary shedding of blood, we can have everlasting life. And the one who has made us kings and priests. Now, there's an alternate translation that says he has made us a kingdom of priests. Well, the only way to really understand what a priest is, is to go back into the Old Testament, because that's where the priesthood started. The Old Testament priests, they had access to God. They ministered to God. And they mediated atonement for the people, right? And in 1 Peter 2.5, it says believers are now a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus, by dying on the cross, he has given us access to the throne room of God. Hebrews 4 tells us to, uh, tells us that. We can come anytime, day, night, 3 o'clock in the morning, you can't sleep. You can go before the throne room of God and, and just speak to God. We have that access now. And the Bible tells us that we're, there's really no need for a, quote, body of, of priests, but we are priests now as, as believers, and we mediate for the, for the rest of the world that doesn't know God, who are in spiritual darkness. I find that interesting because that's pretty heavy. What are we wasting time with? Do you realize, Russ, that you're a priest? Do you realize that? Ray, that you're a priest, right? Do you realize that? Do you, have you really absorbed the gravity of what that means? It means that there's a world that's dying and going to hell. They're in spiritual darkness, and we should be mediating for them. Now, I see... Let me make a, a, a quick parallel here. Um, I saw what happened in the Old Testament with the children of Israel. If you look at a map of the known world, God put Israel smack dab in the middle of the map, surrounded by pagans, heathens. And they were supposed to be a light to that pagan world. They were supposed to take monotheism, the true God, and bring that to their pagan neighbors. But what did they end up doing? They ended up saying, hmm, I like that Canaanite goddess. I like that... Um, Whatever. They looked around and they started liking what the other people had and they forsook God and they became influenced by those around them. And they were no more influencing those around them. And you know what? I see that in Christianity today. We have incredible responsibility as Christians. If nothing else, oh, I don't have any talents, Pastor Joe. Can you pray? We can all do that. Can you mediate for this world? And we're not doing it. You know why? Because Christians are looking at what everybody else has the self-centeredness, the materialism, and we're doing what the children of Israel are doing. Instead of influencing others, we're letting the, the spiritually dead world influence us. That's a problem in the American church. This is a heavy task that we're a holy priesthood. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was 
and who is to come, the Almighty. He is coming with clouds. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus was was ascending into heaven, and the disciples were, were staring, looking at him. Probably had a lot of emotionalism there, and they just kept looking up, you know, and Jesus was taken away in the clouds. And the angel said to the disciples, men of Israel, why are you staring? You know, why do you keep looking up like this? This same Jesus who you saw go will also come back in like manner from the clouds where they will be able to see him. Now, what's interesting is the Jehovah Witnesses believe that he, he came back in secret in 1975. You kind of have to, have to understand a little bit of history there. In 1914, they predicted that Jesus would come back and reign on the earth. And loyal Jehovah Witnesses sold their homes, their cars, all their possessions, quit work, and, you know, kind of waited around. And 1914 came and went, and Jesus didn't come back. 1918, 1925, 1975. So finally what happened was the Watchtower Society changed their tactics and said, well, he did come back, but it was kind of invisible because they had to do damage control of all the false prophecies. But the Bible tells us that Jesus will come in like manner as he went. We can see that in Revelation. Now we must distinguish the rapture from the second coming. Well, Jesus is going to return, yes. In one sense, he's going to return for his people. And in one sense, he's going to come and return to the world and judge the living and the dead and uh, interfere with human history on earth. The rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, tells us a few things. When he comes for his believers, we will meet him in the clouds. He doesn't touch down to earth. Uh, The rendezvous will be with believers only and... From there, it seems like from the next event after he draws us up into heaven is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The second coming is different. Uh, Matthew 24, 30 through 31. All will see the Lord come back in power and glory. He touches down to earth, uh, Zechariah tells us. There'll be a great mourning and he'll make war with the rebellious and the wicked. So I believe this is a picture of that event. And I'm going to read Zechariah 12, going back to the Old Testament, just to kind of reinforce some of this. Remember, this is the Old Testament. It says this, Zechariah. And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Raman in the plain of Megiddo, and it goes on. This hasn't happened yet, but this is a prophecy, and all of God's prophecies come to pass. Pretty fascinating stuff. They will look on him whom they have pierced. It's a picture of the crucifixion, right? And they will mourn. There'll be a national mourning. Oh, my goodness, this was the Messiah. And all the world will, will, will be, um, there'll, there'll be mixed emotions based on this event. And in verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, what does that mean? Alpha in the Greek alphabet, from A to Alpha to Omega, Alpha is like our A, it's the beginning. And Omega is like our Z, it's the end. So it's the beginning and the end. And again, it's a picture of the eternal nature of God. You have to wrap your mind around eternity. You know, the scientists at first thought that the Big Bang happened an infinite amount of years in the past. I'll just give you a quick mathematics. If you look at the number eight and you turn it on its side, that's the picture for infinity. So if you take, you go back to grade school again, you put yourself on the timeline, we're in 2008, and you go back an infinite number of years, do you realize we never get to today? I know that's really heavy. If you go back to infinity, you'll never get to 2008. 
because you're going back to infinity. Think about that after the service. I'll show you on a piece of paper. So infinity and the eternality of God is pretty amazing to wrap your mind around. It's something that I don't think we can fathom uh, this side of eternity. And it's, it's funny because, what is it, uh, last week they just fired up the big old Hadron Collider 17-mile oval and they're going to start smashing you know, protons and stuff and taking data. And there's a lot of people that think the world's going to end because of, it's going to make black holes and stuff. But it's fascinating stuff. It's so cool because God, he set the whole, set, the whole thing up. And then he watches us as little kids play and discover. He, he already knows all this stuff. It's pretty, pretty cool. Okay, going back to where we're at here. Verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Third portion of this is the messenger appears. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So the revelation comes to him on a Sunday, and he is certainly being guided by the Holy Spirit. He has a lot of guides, so to speak. The Holy Spirit is guiding him. The angels come to him and show him things. Um, Jesus speaks to him. Pretty amazing. But what you see is that the Holy Spirit is actually guiding him. There's a lot of Trinity in here. Now, some anti-Trinitarians will say, well, the Bible doesn't actually say Trinity, but it describes the Trinity. Understand? Verse 9, he says, I am your companion in tribulation. Now, in the world, we would say misery loves company, right? We've heard that. Spiritually, we would say, brother, I'm here for you in your sufferings. It's a picture of encouragement. And even in my prayer this morning, I said in Hebrews 2.18, it tells us that Jesus suffered, Jesus was tested, Jesus went to trials, and he is able to aid those now who are tested. He certainly knows what we've been through. You know, I could take everything that I've been through in my life and all the heartache and problems, and I still would never compare it to being crucified. I would never compare it to having to bear everyone's sins and having my Father in heaven look away from me. So Jesus certainly knows what we're dealing with. There's a lot of comfort in, this, in the Bible today. And you can look at this and say, so what you're saying is, well, Jesus went through this, so he knows how we feel. And... The apostles, these men who were highly revealed, revealed, revered and revealed by Jesus, also went through this. So what you're saying is, I can have this same grace? Yes, you can. Going back to what I said before, whatever you came here with, whatever's weighing on your mind, there's a message in here for you. There's encouragement. There's compassion. There's God being with you in your sufferings. And John also monikers himself to other believers as a brother. Did you notice that? a brother and a companion. He didn't say, listen, I'm the apostle. Do what I say. Don't do what I do. Jesus said, if you're in that kind of position, don't lord it over others. John says, hey, I'm a fellow brother and companion in sufferings. And in verse 10, now here's where we start to get, um, what is this? John's in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. He's trying to describe, it's a loud voice, it's, it's as of a trumpet, What's going on here? 
The trumpet blast certainly has some symbolism, especially in the Old Testament. It was a call to arms. It was to herald something important. The rapture, uh, the, the trumpet blast preceded the rapture, and there's many other things. But also, it was a loud voice. It was powerful to the disciple John. Now, the symbolist and the literalist might argue over this, but you can see both of them. You could see the power of his voice, and you could see maybe Jesus didn't have the the type of inflection or the type of tones that we have as humans. It it was a language that he could decipher, but it it was different. Remember, Jesus is glorified now. And in verse 11, we see that Jesus takes the Father's title of the Eternal One. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Would anybody here take any of the titles Think about the Old Testament, all the different titles for God, the, the names for God. Would anybody here be so bold as to name themselves the judge or the savior? Anybody would do that? Because if you do, do me a favor, sit outside in the smoking section. Don't sit here. Get it, smoking section. <laughs> a little delay there. Unless, of course, Christ is divine. And we know that Christ is deity. If you look in your bulletins, I have, and I'm just going to digress uh, briefly, there's a blue piece of paper, and this piece of paper is very interesting because it came from a book of a couple, the Setnars, who were loyal Jehovah Witnesses for many years, and somewhere in the middle of their life, they started questioning and researching it, and they realized that they were following something that was not true. So they left, and they wrote a whole book exposing the secrets and a lot of the things about the organization. But what's fascinating is if you look horizontally, there's a line. And on the bottom of of that line is titles. Light, judge, creator, savior, rock, the first and the last, the I am. And there's scriptures in the Old Testament that describe God, the Father, with these titles. And some of them are very heavy, like in Isaiah. I am the only savior. There is none like me. There are no gods before me or no gods after me. But you see above the line in the New Testament Jesus uses all the titles that were the names of God in the Old Testament for himself. So he's either a fraud, or he's insane, or he is who he claims to be, divine, and equal with the Father. So this is something that you can look at on your spare time, pretty pretty good for the deity of Christ. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. This section is the messenger described. John sees the glorified Jesus here. Now, there's a striking parallel, again, on your own, Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days. There's an incredible parallel to the descriptors of Jesus here and the ancients of the ancient of days spoken about in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is in the midst of seven golden lampstands, which we'll see explained in the next few verses. But here's the glorified Christ's appearance given. Now, again, if, you, are you, if you're inside the box and you, you're so you know, narrow-minded that it, it only could be this, 
you're going to have trouble with this book. There is symbolism. Yes, you see a lot of symbolism. We're going to go through the descriptors of Jesus. However, it's how Jesus chose to manifest himself to the Apostle John, isn't it? I can only change my appearance, Joe DiProsimo, in very few ways. I can cut my hair. I can lose weight. I can gain weight. But, you know, you're going to recognize me. See, Jesus as God can change his appearance the way he wants to change it. He could be, he can come in the picture of a freight train to John because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. So there's symbolism in these pictures of Jesus, these characteristics, but it's also how Jesus chose to represent himself to the apostle. One, he had a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. It's a picture of Jesus as the high priest and also the king. Two, his head and hair were white like wool. Again, Daniel chapter 7 is a picture of wisdom and timelessness, eternality. Three, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Fire equals judgment in the Bible. Jesus has the ability to discern all things where humans can be deceived. Even our eyes, our eyes are so quick in the pictures they take. It's amazing if you study the, the organ of the eye. But Jesus had eyes like the flame of fire. You know, I've watched magic tricks and, and people do tricks with their hands, sleight of hand, and here you see it and now you don't. And I, how do they do that? Short sleeve shirts and all. Because things can still get past our eyes. Jesus, not so. He has the ability with his eyes to discern all things. He knows all things. That's that picture. And his feet were like purified brass. The brazen altar was where the sacrifices were consumed in the Old Testament. And also, a lot of weapons were made of this brass. So here's a picture of invincibility and victoriousness. And five, his voice. Now, first we saw the voices of a trumpet. Now we have a voice as of many waters. Have you ever been by a waterfall? <laughs> How many people have been by Ni Niagara Falls, right? Or even just going to the park and there's a waterfall and your cell phone rings. You can't hear that person and that person can't hear you. Because water is powerful. It's the universal solvent in chemistry, right? And it has power when it comes down. So here's a picture of, this is just amazing. It is, when Jesus speaks to you, it just sends, just, I don't know, shockwaves through your body. Just like John, I can't explain everything in this book. And I, and I grasp for the words. But use your imagination when you start to read this and see the power of Jesus Christ. And in his right hand are messengers, which we'll come back to. And seven, out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. Now, the Roman army revolutionized warfare in a lot of ways. They had the, you know, the Greeks had the phalanx with the, with the shields together in a row, and they, they made a, unif a unified front as of a wall. The Romans improved upon that, and they tested each other with that. The Romans also improved on swords. Now, in the old days, they would have these long swords with a blade on one end, and you'd have your shield, and you would go to hack the other person. And then he'd go to hack you, and you'd, you'd block. And eventually somebody would get through and cut off a limb, and then it was all over. Pretty awful stuff, right? But the Rome, what the Romans did was they revolutionized their weaponry. They, they, I forget the name of the um, dagger or dirk or whatever they called it, but it was a, a medium-range sword. It was about two to two and a half feet long. It had two edges on it. And from a refined metallurgic process, it was a very hard metal. So what they would do is they would get into their formations, and they could thrust, they could slash, they could hack, because it was, very, it was a very versatile weapon. So here's a picture of this double-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, and anyone who saw that would know that's pretty powerful. 
Again, it's how Jesus chose to manifest himself. But let me submit to you this. Not only does Jesus have power, but I'm going to read to you Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 4.16. Oh, excuse me. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Kind of goes back to the eyes. The eyes are discerning, and the word of God and the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth is able to discern. It's able to separate the sheep from the goats. It's able to separate the make-believers from the real believers, right? So this is, pretty, this is a really good picture here. And number eight. He, was, he had the countenance like the sun. Now, this is reminiscent of James, John, and Peter that went up to the mountain and saw Jesus transfigured before them, right? His clothes were whiter than any bleaching they've ever seen, and his, his, his appearance was, was like the sun. It was so bright. So the transfiguration. Here we see that, that glory coming back. And the sun that we know as humans is one of the most powerful objects in our whole solar system. You could shoot nukes at the sun, but before it even reaches the sun, it would melt them. Or it would make them inert. It would be useless. So Jesus is this picture of glory, of radiance, of power. And all these descriptors kind of come together. And it's probably an assault on the disciple John's senses. I mean, if you were him, it's just like just an assault on your senses. You're dealing with people. You're dealing with chairs. You're dealing with the sky. Hey, I can deal with that all my life. Then you're confronted with Jesus in his glorified form. And you're just overwhelmed. And we're going to see what happens to him. Verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have, there, I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Last portion, the messenger reveals. Now, as Jesus often explained the parables to his followers in the Gospels, he's explaining the things that John may not understand here in Revelation. You see a consistency with Jesus. The Bible says of Jesus... Uh, in Hebrews 13, and also of the Father in many scriptures, they are the same yesterday, today, and forever. They do not change because they're perfect. You don't change on perfection. In verse 17, Daniel, the, the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, also fell down as dead. Daniel chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. A lot of parallels between uh, Revelation and the book of Daniel here. Uh, again, many similarities between Daniel and John. And in Isaiah 6, we know that Isaiah saw the Lord in his glory, the Lord high and lifted up, and, and his train of his robe filled the temple, and the seraphim stood, and they cried out, holy, 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 and they thundered, and the, the posts of the temple shook, and the smoke filled the whole place. And Isaiah basically just looked at this and said, I'm toast. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> Seriously, he, he, he saw this whole vision, and he said, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What am I going to do? You know, what do I do? He probably panicked. And the angel came over and took the tongues of 
into the altar and took the live coal and burned his lips and said, you're now purged of your sin. You can be in God's presence. So in medicine, we would call it vasovagal syncope, <laughs> something that is so stressful that you just you kind of pass out. And that's what's happening with the disciple John here, or I think. It's a good guess. But, you know, sometimes we as Christians need to learn to fall down as dead before God. And what do I mean by that? Because I think in our society, we're just so, you know, technologically advanced. We're so superior intellectually. You know, we can do anything in this country that the reverence for God, again, it's an inverse relationship. As we become more ego-centered and more, uh, you know, building ourselves up, the, the, the reverence for God kind of goes down. It's an inverse relationship. Because you know what? God hasn't changed. So why is our reverence, especially as Christians, why has that changed for God? There's, there's really no reason for it. There's no good reason, right? So it's something that we need to look at, the reverence for God. These men and women of the Bible, you know, Mary, uh, Mary, when she was greeted by the angel, she, she was uh, definitely it was an emotional experience with her because the angel said, do not fear, Mary. Why would the angel say that if Mary wasn't kind of, you know, freaking out in a sense? Because men and women of God had fear of God. And when they were certainly greeted by these heavenly messengers or uh, the Lord himself in his visions, they just fell down as dead. They just couldn't, their human bodies couldn't handle it. Do not be afraid. Loving words from our Savior. Notwithstanding his glory, Jesus died on the cross and now is able to comfort us and he's approachable. Again, that's that last tier of, the, of the, what I talked to you about in the beginning. Whatever you've come here into this church with, God is approachable, God loves you, and God comforts you. What he did for the disciple, what he did for the apostles, he also will do for us. The Bible tells us that. And in verse 17 and 18, he says this, I am he, now look at this, before it said, uh, John said, the one who greets you is from he who was, who is, and is to come. Look at the difference here. In verse 18, he says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. That's interesting because how do we know this is Jesus? Well, could it be God? Did God ever die? I don't remember reading about God ever dying. I know Nietzsche thought, the philosopher, that God died. And then Nietzsche died and God said, Nietzsche is dead. Right? But other than that, I don't know when God ever died. So this is only a picture of Jesus Christ. He died and he came back from the dead. He also has the keys to Hades and death. He always has the power over death and who goes there. And as we go more through uh, the book of Revelation, we're going to see the books were opened up. You know, you get a picture of these huge books with dust flying off of it. And those whose names were not found in the book of life, they don't make it, right? Verse 19, he says, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And we're going to see the things you have seen really covers chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the messages to the churches, and the things that are to come that are about to happen in the rest of the book. Verse 20. Now this is where Jesus deciphers the whole thing about the lampstands and the stars. The mystery of the seven stars. The seven stars are the angels. Now the word for angels in the Greek is angeloi, angeloi, which where we get a transliteration into angels. But that word angeloi literally means messengers. There are sometimes, few times in the Bible, that word, that word is translated into being a messenger. So some kind of say, well, this could be angels, or it could be some type of messengers. In some cases, it could be the pastors of those churches. But what is the message, either way? 
The message is that God is in control. It kind of reminds me, as I was doing this, um, a song came in my head. He's got the whole world in his hand, right? He's got these things in his hands, these objects. He's got the whole world in his hand. God is ultimately in control. He's sovereign over the universe. And certainly, again, the bigger we see that God is, the more we realize that individually God has sovereignty and control over our lives. And that's something that's an individual relationship between ourselves and our Lord. So all the problems and trials that you're going through, just think about that. And Jesus even said in one portion of Scripture, he goes, those who are mine and in my hands, no one can snatch them out of my hands. If you are truly his, if you truly call Jesus your Lord and Savior, if you've truly given up your sins to the cross and have repented, you're in Jesus' hands. And I tell you, that's one you know, you play the games with the kids and you got candy in your hand and your kids try to pull your fingers open and get the candy. Well, Jesus' fingers can't be pried open because we are safely in his hands. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus 24, the lampstand um, had in the tabernacle and in the temple contains oil. And that oil was supposed to burn continuously. I believe the priest had to go in there two times a day and check on that oil and make sure that oil was still in the lampstands. So day and night in the tabernacle, day and night in the temple, in the menorah, in that lampstand, that oil had to be burning. And that was a picture of God's light never being diminished. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus is the light of the world. And we also know that in the scripture, it tells us that Jesus celebrated the festival of lights, which we know as Hanukkah. And that was the miracle of the oil that burned for eight days. It was only supposed to be enough for one day. Uh, they they tried to um, clean out all the pagan influences and rededicate the temple. And they only had oil for one day. But that oil lasted for eight days, right? Now, in light of that, no pun intended, what is the purpose of the church? We're going to see that next Sunday. To be in close proximity to Jesus and to shine his light. Just like in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were supposed to be a light to the, the then world. As a church, we could talk about you know, all kinds of things, all kinds of announcements, all kinds of events, things that are going on outside of the church. But the bottom line is, we're supposed to be a light to a lost and dying world. How does the modern church measure up to that? What about the modern Christian? Again, we're going to see a lot of this in chapter 2. We need to get back to our roots, the roots of making Christ the center of the lampstands, the center of church life, and also to shine his life to the spiritual, shine his light to the spiritually dark world. Let's pray.